Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, we have an episode I am so proud of and so honored to present. This year, as a part of our fundraising effort to keep Risk in existence during what has been a year of financial crisis for us, we're looking back at some of our very favorite stories that have ever been told on Risk as a way of showing how irreplaceable this podcast is. And in the latter half of the episode today, you're going to hear the most extraordinary conversation about this story. Lee True shared the story you're about to hear on the podcast in February of 2022, a story about grief and loss. It was this unusual situation where the audition recording that Lee sent in was so good, we just used it. There was no coaching on this story from our end. After the story, I'll introduce this new segment we recorded recently, a conversation between Lee and therapist Laurel Marks. But for now, here is Lee True with a story we call The Light That Burns Twice As Bright. So my daughter, Blaze, was three years old. And I was looking after her for the weekend because her mom needed to work in Sydney, which is the nearest big city to us where we lived on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. We had booked Blaze in for swimming lessons. We'd been going to the local swimming pool and every time we went, there were big kids having swimming lessons in a part of the pool that was roped off and Blaze would look at them and she would say, can I do swimming lessons? And we'd say, oh, when you're a bit older, maybe when you're bigger. But now she was old enough to do the swimming lessons and we'd booked her in and the season was about to start. And problem was that she had a bit of a cold. She had a temperature and 
kind of a runny nose and she hadn't been eating much for a few days and her her heart rate was kind of elevated you could feel her heart beating so when she said oh is it swimming lessons soon dad i said actually it was supposed to be today but i think that because you got a cold we might have to leave it for another time and she said oh no i want to do swimming lessons i want to do swimming lessons and i said okay we'll see and i started making breakfast and hoping that she would just forget but she went upstairs to her bedroom and she came back down again dressed in her swimming costume and she sat there on this little box that we had was just kicking her legs waiting for me to take her to swimming lessons and i felt really torn i was thinking what is the right thing to do right now she desperately wants to do this is it okay is it safe is it criminal negligence if i take her swimming now what should we do i'm not sure so i thought i'll just wait till after we've we've had breakfast so we had breakfast and then she seemed to be better she kind of was perkier and seemed fine really apart from some sniffles and a little bit of sort of pink in her cheek so i said okay we'll we'll go there and we'll see how we go and so we got in the car drove out there and ha- had her nicely rugged up so she was all warm but when we pulled up at the swimming pool again i looked in the in the rearview mirror and she, again she looked a little bit sick her eyes were a little bit glazed she was sort of a bit dreamy a bit spacey and i thought oh god what's the right thing to do in this moment i'm not sure i felt torn again but when she saw the swimming pool she started getting excited and she said okay swimming lessons swimming lessons and i said okay let's go in so we we got into the building and we got changed and suddenly is that that chlorine smell and all the the rowdiness of kids shouting and she felt a bit overwhelmed suddenly she said ah i think i want to go home So now I'm torn again because I think what's the right thing to do here? Should I go home? If I if we go home now, am I just telling her that it's okay to quit when things get hard or is that just a crazy idea and we should just go home and let this girl rest? She also seemed kind of undecided. She part of her seemed like she wanted to do the lessons, part of her didn't. We went up to go and talk to the the swimming teacher who'd seen us kind of indecisive and She said, "Oh, she'll be fine." She was this big Irish lady. She said, "She'll be fine. Just leave her with me, dad. Dad just take a little walk away." And I think to myself, "Oh, she thinks I'm this kind of overprotective helicopter parent. She doesn't understand that Blaze is actually a bit sick. I've tried to explain this to her." But then I'm like, "Maybe I am an overprotective helicopter parent. Maybe I just do need to walk away." And so I said to Blaze, "Hey, I'm just going to leave you for the swimming lessons for a little bit and then I'll come back again." And she starts saying, "No, daddy, no." please daddy please and she starts wailing wailing and the swimming instructor lady says okay dad you need to walk away now and i'm like so torn in this moment okay is this trauma in action is this what she's going to be talking to therapists about in years to come is this abandonment stuff and every time she goes past a swimming pool she's going to feel kind of neglected and emotionally <laughs> damaged or should i just leave her and maybe my indecision is making it harder for her completely torn but in the end I just decided to walk away the matronly swimming instructor was quite convincing when she said she'll be fine dad I think you just need to go for a walk and so I turned around and I walked away feeling like my heart was getting pulled out and I went and stood behind this pillar they had these big pillars in the pool and I waited for a minute and then I looked back around the pillar and within 30 seconds Blaze stopped crying and she was joining in with all of the other girls and they were doing this thing where they were moving hand over hand around the edge of the swimming pool 
and I felt so proud. Wow, my little girl, she's doing the swimming lessons with the big girls. Well done. So happy and proud for her. So relieved. And the time flew by and when the lesson was done, I, I came to her and I had all snacks and a warm towel. And she said, I did it, Daddy. I did swimming lessons with the big girls. I said, I know. I'm so proud of you, my sweetie. Well done. And I gave her a big hug and we had some snacks together and then we went and got changed and we stood in the showers and there was this warm shower. We went into the family changing room so we kind of had it to ourselves. And I was holding her and the warm shower was on her back and she kind of just softened into me and just relaxed and we spent a long time there, about maybe 20 minutes in the shower and a big part of that was just me kind of wanting to give her space to relax and feel safe but also maybe for me to <laughs> let go of the tension and neurosis I'd had about whether this swimming lesson was a good idea in the first place but for 20 minutes I just I held her under that shower and I sang to her and she was murmuring along singing with me and I told her what I I would tell her every day which is you're my clever brave strong beautiful girl I'm so proud to be your dad we got changed and started driving back home again. We called up her mum in Sydney to let her know what had happened. And we said, oh, Blaze was such a big girl today. She went and did swimming lessons. And she wasn't sure if she wanted to do it at first. And I wasn't sure if it was a good idea. And then when we got there, she was crying. And I, in the end, I walked away. I felt so bad. But she did it. It was a great, a great day. She really enjoyed it. And Blaze was listening in the back. And I was talking to her mum on speakerphone. And after we hung up, she said from the back of the car, Daddy, I know why you had to walk away. I said, do you, my sweetheart? Why is that? She said, so I could concentrate. She was three years old. I didn't even know she knew the word concentrate. And I said, oh, I'm so glad that you understand. That's exactly right, my love. That's exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> Almost feeling like I wanted to cry with relief. And then we got home and... She immediately wanted to go to bed. She wouldn't eat anything, which was really distressing for me. I was like, you need to eat something after swimming lessons. She'd only had a tangerine. So I was trying to get her to eat stuff and getting a bit stressed out about that, the fact that she wouldn't eat. And in the end, put her in front of a DVD of Miffy, Miffy the Little Rabbit. She liked this animated movie about Miffy the Rabbit. And I started trying to get on with work. I had emails and a business call to do. And at one point in the middle of the business call, she was shouting for me she needed something and so I had to pause the call and come in and start the movie again. It had finished and she wanted it to start again. Part of me was feeling guilty that I was just babysitting my daughter with the screen and a part of me was feeling stressed out that I was having to do this single parenting thing and feeling embarrassed that I was having to interrupt my calls and just kind of tension and, and angst and also anxiety. And then that evening, Gina got back home again and I explained that Blaze had been in bed and was still pretty sick and Gina said well maybe we should just take her to hospital get her checked out and because we'd taken her recently to a hospital up in Sydney and they knew her up there she said I'll just drive up to Sydney again it's not that far and so the next day they got in the car and as they turned the car around just before they headed off I, I heard Blaze say mommy are we going on an adventure and her mum said yes that's right we are and they drove off.
And then that evening, I got a phone call from Gina at the hospital, Blaze's mum, saying that they had done x-rays of Blaze's chest because her breathing was a bit short and raspy. And they discovered disturbing masses all throughout her abdomen. And that they had put her under general anesthetic to do an MRI scan. And then under the general anesthetic, one of her lungs had collapsed because it was so full of tumors, the size of grapes and, and lemons, she said. And that Blaze was still unconscious and was now on life support on a breathing machine. And that I should come to the hospital immediately. And I didn't know it then, but that was the last time as I saw them leaving in the car, it was the last time I ever saw Blaze conscious. Two weeks later, she was dead. Two weeks later, the doctors were explaining to us that it was time to switch off the machine, that we'd done everything that we could, and that the concentration of oxygen that it was requiring to, to keep her blood oxygenated was actually scalding her lungs and damaging them permanently. And that the air pressure that was needed to keep pushing air into her lungs was actually opening tears in her lungs. That she hadn't responded to adult strength chemotherapy. And that at least one of the tumors seemed now to have grown so big it was restricting blood flow to the brain and she might have sustained permanent brain damage. It was likely that she had. And so that night, well, we switched off her machine. And we held her while she, while she left her body. There's a lot more to that story that wasn't completely out of the blue because three or four years earlier, when Gina had first discovered that she was pregnant, she was in her 40s when she got pregnant. So as far as she was concerned, parenthood was out of the question. So it's a surprise to discover that she was pregnant, a nice surprise. And then a few days later, she discovered that she had breast cancer. She had a lump and when it got the biopsy and they said, yeah, you have breast cancer. So four days after discovering that she was pregnant, she discovered she also had breast cancer. And the doctor advised her then, you have to get an abortion. You have to terminate this pregnancy because the pregnancy hormones are going to be like candy for this cancer, going to be like steroids for this cancer. You won't survive and neither will the child. So terminate immediately. And Gina, who is a strong person who knows herself, sort of trusts her intuition, felt deep inside of herself and said, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I think that there's a way. So she went ahead with the pregnancy. And it seemed to be fine until the middle trimester when the levels of circulating tumor cells in her body skyrocketed. And... Even the, the one doctor that we'd found who was supportive of her choice to keep Blaze started to be concerned and Gina decided that it was time to have some chemotherapy even though she was pregnant in the second trimester. And the doctors that we spoke to said that this was fine, that this, this happened from time to time and the most likely complication would be that the child might be born with a, a slightly lower birth weight because the, the chemotherapy suppresses quickly growing cells. So that maybe she'll be a bit smaller when she comes out, but other than that, it should be fine. And that the uterus filters out the vast majority of the, of the chemotherapy. It protects her on the whole. And lo and behold, when Blaze was born, she was actually a big baby. She was four and a half kilos. She was massive. And I remember 
us being at home and Gina going into labor and the contractions getting really big, really strong. And us on the phone to the midwife and the midwife saying, just stay at home, don't come to the birthing center yet. Often mums come in too early and then the adrenaline of the to travel slows down birth. So just wait until the last minute. And then I hung up and I said to Gina, this is what the midwife says, we need to just stay here. And Gina says, get her back on the phone and tell her I'm about to have this baby right now. <laughs> and so I phoned her up again. I said, hey, Gina, would like to talk to you. And Gina screamed down the phone as the next contraction came and the midwife says, okay, come immediately. And so we piled into the car and I, at the time, wasn't driving very much. I actually didn't have a, have a full driver's license. <laughs> I'd been living in big cities or living in the bush and I hadn't done much driving. So I'm driving this enormous Land Rover Defender beast of a truck, and I wasn't sure of the way to the hospital. And Gina had her head down and her bum up in the air, having really intense contractions in the back of the car and screaming, and every now and then popping her head up to, to say, go right, go right, go right, here, don't, stop, 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 don't, 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 don't. <laughs> left, left, left ahead, left ahead. And uh, I'm sweating and trying to drive this car, and we pull up in front of the hospital, and... They let us just leave the car right in front of the hospital because Gina's screaming so loudly and help her into a wheelchair and then we're racing into the elevator and we get out of the elevator and she screams so loudly that all of the doctors in the birthing unit come running. And as we wheel her towards the ward, she's screaming again at the next contraction and we see it flashes briefly by this room full of prospective parents. I see all these wide-eyed parents sitting in a circle in chairs and the nurse is explaining how to change a nappy and they hear this woman go past screaming sort of like Doppler effect I imagine and Blaze was born about 15 minutes after we got into the room and I was transformed forever that feeling when I got to hold her I, I caught her she was born into a birthing pool there was a bit of excitement because the cord was extremely short and it meant that Gina couldn't bring her up to her chest. The cord only would allow Blaze to sit on Gina's belly. And Gina in her post-labor delirium was trying to pull Blaze closer to her and didn't realize that the cord was so short. And it meant that Blaze wasn't breathing. No one realized why, but we just realized Blaze wasn't breathing and was starting to go a bit blue. And the midwife was starting to freak out and was about to go press the red button, which would get the doctors running. And in fact, did press the red button. Just after she pressed it, I saw that there was tension on the cord. And I said, oh, the cord's short. Let's just give it some slack. And the minute that we did that, <sighs> Blaze started breathing. And then a couple beats after that, a doctor came running into the room with his arms outstretched and was ready to grab Blaze and take her away. He didn't see that she was still attached to Gina. The placenta hadn't come through yet. So I shoulder-barged him out of the way. And I stood between him and Gina and I said, it's okay, it's okay. And he looked at me like I was an arsehole and I felt really bad. But I just knew in that moment he was going to grab Blaze and then a horrible thing was going to happen. It's going to be painful for everyone. So I just barged him out of the way. I went and said sorry to him afterwards. So that, that was a bit of excitement. We bundled Blaze up and Gina went to go have a shower and I had Blaze on my chest just lying on the bed there and I had that feeling of okay my life has changed forever now and this feeling of being invested in the world more than I ever had been before before that I was feeling like the world was a, a terrible and scary and messed up place and 
feeling blaze on my chest, I realized, well, now I have to make it better. I have to help to make this world a good place for this little one. And then a couple of years went by and when Blaze was maybe two and a half, we discovered this lump in her belly, just this strange hardish lump that felt kind of almost like a lemon. And when Gina took her to the doctor, the doctor got very scared and said, you're going to need to go to, to Sydney and get this looked at. I'm a bit worried that it might be the C word, which it turned out to be. And so we had to take her to the kids' hospital in Sydney. And by that time, Blaze had spent two and a half years growing up on a bush property, sitting in the dirt, playing with charcoal, playing with fire, climbing trees, eating witchetty grubs, listening to birdsong, chasing free-range guinea pigs around. Being in a city was strange for her. Being in a hospital was weird for her. And having adults who were in a hurry and quite bossy and telling her that they needed to take her temperature or put this blood pressure cuff on her or that she needed to sit still for this thing. She really didn't take well to it at all. <laughs> it was like trying to explain to a wild creature that captivity was an okay thing or it was okay to be prodded and examined and things like that. And she was extremely resistant and was having massive wailing tantrums that were exhausting for everyone, including her. And it was just really wrenching for me, heart-wrenching the moment that we had to hand her over for that operation and they put the mask over her face which would give the anesthetic gas that would knock her out. She was protesting and screaming and struggling and then she just slowly kind of lost consciousness as she went under the anesthetic. Just felt so horrible. So such a horrible, wrenching thing for me to do and then to hand her over to adults who I knew were going to slice into her with scalpels and a part of me, of course, knew this was exactly what she needed and was grateful, but the neurotic part of me was just incredibly overwhelmed by that. And then also, when she was waking up from the anesthetic, woke up screaming. You know, it was almost like she'd just been on pause. She just woke up screaming after the operation. And then to see those stitches and this large incision in her belly was so difficult to see. But the doctor said, the good news is we've got the tumor out it seemed to just be a single tumor. It looked like we were going to have to take out one of her kidneys, but we managed to save the kidneys. But in doing so, I'm afraid that we spilt some of the blood from inside the tumor into her stomach cavity. And we've hosed it out as best we could, but there's a slight risk. Some tumor cells got away. But that's a small risk. And all being well now, this is the end of the whole cancer journey. We think we've got it all. Come back in six months for a checkup. So three months later was, was when the swimming lesson happened and when Blaze was admitted to hospital and died two weeks after that. And the doctor said that they'd never seen a cancer um, so virulent and that they still couldn't even identify what kind of a cancer it was. It seemed an unusual kind. And the best guess that they had was that the chemotherapy that Blaze had been exposed to during pregnancy had triggered the cancer but then had also suppressed it kind of paradoxically. Chemotherapy agents can be carcinogenic, but then it also stopped the cancer growing any further. But to this day, to my knowledge, they still haven't identified the kind of cancer. They even sent samples of it to the doctor in the States who was the head honcho for cancer classification. That day, when the, when the doctors told us, hey, it's time to switch off the machine, they called us into a room 
And there was a, a meeting of all of them. All of them were there. Everyone that was involved in Blaze's care, all the nurses, the different pediatric oncologists, people who worked in the intensive care. They were all there because they knew they had this difficult message for us. And my attitude up to that point had been, well, clearly it's looking incredibly dire, but we just need to pray for a miracle and miracles happen. And maybe months from now, we'll be able to release our own viral YouTube video, which will have a title like Miracle Cure from Cancer. And we can talk about how it's never too late and you should never give up. And our daughter came back from the very brink of death. And as the doctors are talking to me, I realize what they're saying is that we're not going to be able to make this video and that, that the window, as far as they're concerned, is closed and that it's time to start thinking about how to release her from this situation because because of everything that we're having to do to keep her alive is actually damaging her body and that she might have irreparable damage which would massively impair her quality of life. It would mean that she'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life probably brain damaged and probably having to breathe oxygen for the rest of her life. There's a strange, what's that strange sound? What's that weird kind of animal sound that's coming and then realizing it was coming from my mouth and that my body was starting to grieve before my mind had even caught up with it. And so in between these kind of sobbing and wailing, I spit out the words, I want to know how this is going to affect the care that she receives. In other words, are you guys still going to look after her as if she can pull out of this because I'm, I want to hold the door open for a miracle. And the doctor, bless him, beautiful, compassionate doctor said, I understand that you'd like us to keep on treating Blaze to the best of our ability. That's fine. We can revisit this conversation in a day or two. And then they left and Gina and I held each other and cried in that room. I thought I was crying just because of the horror that we were even having this conversation. I wasn't quite ready to let go and didn't feel like I was crying because it was actually coming to the end of Blaze's life. That evening we went back to the place we were staying, this house that was on the hospital grounds that was for parents of kids who were seriously ill. And in the room where we were staying, it left one of the windows open. This enormous moth had got in. There's a beautiful moth, incredibly intricate in its design. It's really delicate wings. I was tired, I was overwhelmed, and I thought, I can't, there's so much shit in my life right now I just can't control, but I'm going to get this fucking moth out of this room. I need to save this moth. <laughs> so I stalk over to this moth and I try to catch it. And as I catch it, I pin part of its wing to the wall with my finger, and it still flutters so intensely that it gets away. And comes to rest on a different part of the room and I see there's a little bit missing from its wing now. It kind of breaks my heart and makes me angry all at once. I'm sort of so irritated by this. What is this world where horrible things happen to delicate, fragile beings, even though I was the perpetrator in this case? But that just made me angrier because I was like, why can't this moth just cooperate with me and let me rescue it? I'm trying to do the right thing for it. So I start grabbing at it again and again it flutters out. It's incredibly strong and fast. It's fluttering all over the place and I'm grabbing at it and grabbing at it and more and more of its moth dust is being left in different prints on the wall and it suffers a couple more tears and then it hits me. Suddenly it cuts through the, the anger and the overwhelm and I realize I'm actually just destroying this moth. I'm impairing its ability to fly and to carry on being a moth. And 
As I have that thought, I realize this is also what we're doing to Blaze right now. We're actually impairing her ability to live with the things that we're doing, the searing concentration of the oxygen, the damaging pressure of the air. It's actually wounding her, like just like I'm wounding this moth, and we're pretending that we're helping Blaze, just like I'm pretending that I'm helping this moth, but actually damage is occurring. And that was the moment when I realized, okay, it's time. So it was the next day we went and sat with Blaze and she was lying in this bed with all of the tubes going into her face and the breathing tube and the mask that was over her mouth and IV lines going into her arm, chemotherapy lines going into her arm, the beeping of machines and then this, the breathing machine itself was this massive big engine. It's like made a sound like a, almost like a washing machine or something like chonga, 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 chonga. And with every chonga, Blaze's whole body would move as if she was being shaken. And I sort of saw her for the first time really clearly and just saw how, how much violence was being done to this poor body that was actually ready to leave, ready to fly away all on its own. And we were kind of pinning it here to life and damaging it, wounding her. At that point, it just became unbearable to keep her on the machine anymore. We said, let's, can we please just get her off this machine as quickly as possible? It's clear that we've reached the end of the road and now it's just distressing to see this machine shaking her body like a rag doll and all of these veins and tubes in her. Let's let her die peacefully. But somehow with all the conversations and things that needed to happen, it wasn't until late into the night that we got to the place where we'd had all the conversations we needed to, we'd signed all the forms, we'd spoken to friends and family and let them know what was about to happen. And then the doctors were amazing, they were so beautiful, they said, okay, just let us know how you want this to happen. What do you need? Do you want us to be here? We said, we want to do this alone, just tell us what buttons to press, how to get the breathing machine to switch off. We'll just hold her and we'll, we'll do this on our own. And so they explained to us, this is the button that you'll press to give her an overdose of morphine. This is the button that you can press to switch off the breathing machine when you're ready. This is how you can take out the ventilation tube. So we held her and they disconnected all the IVs so that it was possible for us to hold her. For the first time in two weeks, we hadn't been able to hold her. And we said all of the most powerful and precious things that we could think of to her and we sang all of our most sacred songs to her as Gina pressed the button and I disconnected the hose. We'd forgotten to ask how to switch off the machine so it's still going chunga 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 in the background and air was hissing out of this hose so I just stuffed it under a pillow and tried to block out the sound as we held her and sang to her and I told her the thing that I told her every day of her life pretty much which was that she was my clever and brave and strong <laughs> and beautiful girl and I was so proud to be her daddy <laughs> so proud to be her daddy We felt her spirit fly out of her body. We felt that the part of her that was Blaze leave. And it felt like this expansion suddenly, this thing that was, this life in her just almost seemed like it expanded. And later we realized we both had this 
image of a this kind of golden three-dimensional snowflake that <sighs> expanded out of her body and filled the room and then carried on expanding into nothingness and flew away. <sighs> and then we held her through the night and they came in and helped to take out the rest of the tubes and, and take the tape off her face so we could see her face which we hadn't been able to see for the past two weeks. There was this moment when I I looked at her and I said, oh, it, it is you, it was you. Almost like the blaze that we'd let go of just a minute ago hadn't felt like the actual blaze because she was she smelled like hospital, she smelled like astringent, sterilized dressings, and disinfectant and and then I realized, oh my God, it is actually you. <sighs> and they left us and we, we held her through the night and mostly I held her body and, and there were times when I'd wake up in the night and I'd have this horrible thing where for a minute it would feel like I was holding her and she was alive and everything was okay again. And then I'd feel the stillness and the heaviness in her body and realize that it wasn't okay <laughs> and she wasn't really with us and this was some strange remnant of Blaze that wasn't really her at all just her cocoon that she'd cast off <sighs> and in the morning they, the nurses these beautiful nurses so loving and compassionate came and helped us to clean her and plait her hair and dress her in her favorite clothes. <laughs> and they told us that we would have to let them wheel her body down to the morgue, that they would they'd put a blanket over her and they'd wheel her down to the morgue. And we said, we'd really like to hold her until the last minute. Feels like our responsibility to her. So is it possible to bundle her up in blankets and we'll carry her down to the morgue? We'll cover her face so none of the other families in the intensive care can, can see. They led us, bless them, and so we wrapped her in this beautiful, colorful purple blanket so it looked like she was just asleep and I carried her like she was only sleeping and we walked down through the hospital corridors, me and Gina singing to her. until we got down into the to the basement where the morgue was and we had to lay her down on a on a trolley and hand her over to this to the man to the technician who was working at the morgue that day they'd have to put her in a in a fridge to keep the body fresh until the funeral and then we walked out into the sunlight of the next morning people rushing around busy going to work and talking on phones and buses and cars. We were kind of stunned. And my first feeling was this feeling of relief. And I felt so ashamed, but this relief that the ordeal was over. This horrible purgatory of waiting to see if our daughter was going to survive. And now knowing that she hadn't, okay, and we'd given her the best death that we could. And at that point, the wound in me, the grief wound, was that kind of fresh wound 
like when I've cut myself with a knife before and it's there's a moment before the blood starts coming in you just see kind of the white of fat cells underneath as in that moment in my grief as just kind of just shock and just stunned and it's just almost a feeling of relief and also a feeling of grace like god is in everything the universe is breathing through everything right now everything is sacred even though these people around us don't seem to realize it we found a a cafe to go sit down at and have some breakfast and as we were wondering what to order and kind of looking around stunned at this new world i saw something moving in the sky above us and this i don't know what to call it a flock of moths came through the cafe tiny little ones these ones just about a centimeter about half inch long and they were getting caught in people's hair and people were swatting at them and squashing them and throwing them away and they were dropping into people's drinks and i sort of felt like it was this message from the universe this kind of communication that the end of blaze's journey had come through a moth and then these other little moths were here that they were flying free and my first response at seeing them come into trouble and getting tangled in things and crushed and drowned was just my god what is this world what is this world where horrible terrible things happen to innocent beings and at first it was overwhelming disgust and then i kind of felt like this shift as i was experiencing and i realized actually every single one of these moths is someone's daughter someone's son and maybe the message is we're constantly flitting into and out of existence creatures are moving in and out of life all the time and then flying away back to wherever they came from again wherever we sort of felt like that enormous golden three-dimensional snowflake went back to whatever mystery that is and i felt this kinship with all of the parents who have loved and lost or all of the parents who have felt racked by indecision or felt torn by the kind of crucible of this journey this labor of love investing in these little creatures knowing that in the end we just can't protect them from the world and that they won't be able to survive indefinitely at some point they'll have to leave this world just like we'll have to leave this world too this kind of acceptance or recognition of this impermanence and somehow it felt in that moment okay and that kind of became something that i clung to not always successfully in the years that followed and what i found was that the grief became harder over time after the grief really kicked in over the next few days i'd find myself just overcome with tears and wailing in the car or broken down in our hotel room and sobbing and wailing and shouting obscenities at god at life at the universe but that was kind of the easy part of the grief in a way it was like the fresh hot grief like when when blood is first flowing from a wound it did flow and it was easy to feel and easy to move it through and the big waves of grief wouldn't last that long even if i allowed myself to really plunge into the heart of it 10 15 minutes of really intense crying or screaming or swearing and then i'd feel back to this place of expanded acceptance and i'd be strangely remarkably okay in myself for long stretches of time until suddenly i wasn't when the next wave hit and then over time over the next kind of year or so those waves became less frequent and it was almost like if it was a wound like when the blood congeals and starts to clot 
the grief became more sluggish and slower to flow through. And it might be that days at a time I'd be lost in a feeling of hopelessness or depression or just feeling kind of irritable and not knowing why. And then after sort of days of feeling funky or depressed or dark, after days of that, suddenly realizing, oh, is this grief? And then with that realization, a shift that would just switch it into tears and then there'd be some crying and some relief and that wave would pass and I'd feel okay again until the next one came. But it would it would creep up in strange ways. It would look like depression or it would look like rage or it would look like hostility towards Gina or just general overwhelm at life. We had this amazing ceremony to let Blaze go and it was about a month and a half after she died actually. We'd had her cremated at the nearest crematorium we could find in Sydney. And so by this time, weeks later, we'd come back down to the south coast where we were living back in our house. And we were living on a beach and at the end of the beach was a a river that flowed out to the sea and we invited our friends and we said this is a celebration of Blaze's life for my part mainly because I just couldn't stand to see all these people in black and depressed. So we said, please wear pink and purple, which are Blaze's favorite colors. And you can wear tutus and fairy wings if you like to, because they were some of her favorite things to wear. And we spent the morning making rafts, putting pink and purple flowers on them. And then when the tide turned and the river was flowing out to the sea, we went down to the river and we released the rafts, the pink and purple flowers, we let them flow out into the ocean. We sang, we sang together in a big circle of wonderful, beautiful, open-hearted adults who were all wearing pink and purple and many of them wearing fairy wings and tutus. And after it was done and most people were going back to the house, I realized that I hadn't actually felt much grief the whole day I'd mostly been sort of working out the logistics and saying hi to people and thanking them for coming and then as everyone was walking away and I realized it was done I just kind of broke down and I couldn't even walk and I sort of dropped to my knees and as luck would have it there were several male friends of mine and so this group of about six men gathered round and they just held me while I cried and sobbed and said things like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. (laughs) Because another thing I realized was that a big part of the grieving process was it's sinking in that this was real in lots of different ways. There's different levels of it being real. Okay, now this is real. Oh, actually, it's, it's this much real. Okay, it's still real. And this creeping, horrible, insidious idea that I had in my head which would keep sneaking in through the back door that maybe there'd been some terrible mix-up and the blaze that we'd handed over wasn't the real blaze and she was out there somewhere but just with a different family and so if I saw a red-haired child on the street sometimes my heart would leap and I would think it was her Or having this feeling that I'd somehow blundered into a parallel universe. I was in the wrong reality and there was some other reality where Blaze was still alive and well. Perhaps there was some way I could get back there again. 
all different ways that my brain was trying to make sense of the horror of her not being in the world anymore. <sighs> to be honest, that, that journey with grief, <laughs> as you can tell, it's now seven years since we say goodbye to Blaze. I have often thought to myself I should get a tattoo. The words, is it grief? on my arms so that I can look down and whenever I'm feeling irritated or overwhelmed or just inexplicably depressed about the world or hopeless and just remind myself is this grief and then usually when I ask myself is it grief the resounding answer in my body is yes and then the tears flow and I realize it's just more aftershocks more late tremors more slow congealed waves of grief moving through so I I'm still kind of rehabilitating myself. The echoes are, are still reverberating through, but over time they get further and further apart. And mainly now my, my overwhelming feeling is of gratitude. You know, we could have terminated Blaze's life when they advised us to, and instead we got three amazing, wonderful years of Blaze. Three incredible, magical years. And the only way I can make sense of the whole thing is to tell myself that Blaze just needed three years. That was all she needed here before she went back to where she came from. And the perspective I have on that, I feel so grateful for too, because I think back to that swimming lesson and all of the times when I felt so racked. Should we do this? What's the right thing? Am I being a good parent in this way? Am I being a good parent in that way? And then Two weeks later, that was the last day I saw her conscious and realizing none of that mattered. None of the minutiae, those little decisions that felt so racking, that, that felt so fraught, none of them mattered. The only thing that mattered was the times when I felt close to her, that time I held her in the shower afterwards and told her that I loved her and sang to her and felt so close and connected that I felt in that moment as I did in so many other moments, wow, this is so wonderful and beautiful. I could die happy right now. This is worth the price of admission alone to this whole business of life. And telling her that she is my clever and brave and strong, beautiful girl, and I'm so proud to be her dad. Those are the things I cling to. Those are the only things that matter from the perspective of her moving out of her body and flying back to where she came from.
This is Risk. This is Chloe Moriando behind me now with a song called Little Moth. And we just heard Lee True with that truly beautiful story, The Light That Shines Twice As Bright. Now, since we first ran that story in 2022, I've become friends with a Risk listener named Laurel Marks, who is a social worker and a therapist working with young folks and families, offering experiential and narrative-based therapy. And Laurel and I have had fascinating conversations about therapy and storytelling. And at one point she said she'd love to be able to talk to Lee True about his story. So when I asked Lee if he'd be interested in having this conversation, that was when I remembered that Lee himself is a therapist. He was more than happy to have this fascinating conversation. So without further ado, here is Lee True and Laurel Marks. Well, hi, Lee. It's so nice to see you. Thanks hi. for joining today. Um, Such a pleasure. So I'm Laurel, and I'm a master's in social work here in California. I work with teens and families doing therapy, and I am a huge risk fan for many, many years and was really, really deeply impacted and moved when I listened to your story. I think I instantly sent it to a dozen people, wanted to talk to everyone about it, hmm. um, just felt really impacted by it. And mm. so when I heard that Kevin was looking for therapists to re-listen to past stories, some of the most popular stories in the history of risk, and then have conversations, I became very excited. I also instantly thought, well, Lee's story is going to be the number one to go. I'll never get it. Wow, <laughs> it's going to go to kind. some famous therapist in the world. Um, and I was so amazed and honored when um, Kevin told me I could have a conversation with you. And so I'm really looking forward to diving into your story, um, The Light That Burns Twice as Bright, which first aired in February 2022. And yeah, is there anything you want to share about yourself? Or, you know, my first question was how just how it's been to return to this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so I, I think it's th been three years since I recorded that story. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's 10 years now since the anniversary of her death, which actually is going to be in just a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I should jump in right now, but it's actually feeling like this 10-year anniversary is uh, kind of a big one. I'm sort of feeling this sense of completion in the grieving process and I'm even sort of feeling to myself wow maybe it, it can take a decade for a, a big loss like that or it, it, it's taken a decade for me anyway um, just recently my ex-wife Gina's Blaze's mum Gina she she won the Australian uh, alone TV show if you know that that survival show where the oh people my go goodness out. so she just wow. won that she was she stayed out the longest oh and so what, now she's, her own incredible journey <laughs> She's a, she's wow. incredible, incredible, yeah. incredible woman. And so she's, 
she's embarking on this whole new chapter of her life. She's a household name now in Australia. And, um, and, and part of that was they wanted to make a documentary about her. There's a show called Australian Story where they, they'll make a, a show about remarkable Australians. And so they came to interview me and my family about Blaze. And there was this moment where we were looking through Blaze photos. And I, I realized um, that I wasn't feeling angry towards Blaze anymore. And it's kind of, it feels kind of a bit strange and edgy to even talk about that. But I realized sort of in that moment that there'd been a part of me, I kind of made sense of her death by saying to myself, okay, there was this little spirit who just wanted to come for three years. That was her, all she needed here on this planet. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made it doable, kind of sort of manageable in some way. It helped to sort of defang this feeling of catastrophe. But at the same time, there was this little voice that was like, and actually I'm kind of mad at her that she didn't hang around longer. Mm -hmm. uh, and in kind of an embarrassing, an embarrassing voice and, and a, a sort of a sad voice to me because it sort of got in the way of feeling, feeling this, you know, the warmth and the connection. So we were, we were getting filmed, looking through these photos of Blaze and I suddenly realized, wow, I don't, that voice isn't there anymore. I really, mostly what I'm feeling now is gratitude. And, uh, the absence of that anger kind of allowed me to really feel this body memory of what it was like to hold her and be close to her and feel like um, she was, she's, she's a part of me still. And, and it was a huge healing. I was like, oh my God, this is a relief. This is so much better now. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate you bringing in the multiple layers of grief like yeah. right off the bat, like you said, it's edgy. <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing that really spoke to me in, in the story you told, because you talk about all the different emotions that arise with grief. And I especially appreciate the metaphor of the wound, right? That cut and then before it even starts to bleed. And then it's like that freshness and then the cathartic, like crying and the feeling of, all of those emotions and then how it started to clot and become more sluggish and harder to move through, through grief. And, you know, it's really interesting because the way that kind of in pop culture with Kubler-Ross's understanding of grief that we call, you know, the stages of grief is not true in a lot of ways. And she's the first to say that because she was working with patients that were dealing with their own death imminent death that were mm. dying. And so she was looking at what the stages of grief are for yourself, but not necessarily for family and friends and parents and loved ones. And it's very different. And so I really like to work with my clients that I, I led a grief group around, you know, we see it as a straight line and it is the most messy <laughs> tangled spaghetti on a plate, yeah. you know, wrapped up so thing. So I deeply appreciate you saying that and also just calling out that that is edgy. That is the thing we're not supposed to say. Yeah. Um, and I worked with kids that had lost a family member and this little boy, you know, we were trying to be very deep and, you know, meditative and talking about these beautiful things. And <laughs> I think he was four or five and he raised his hand. And he said, is it okay if I also just say that my brother was really mean uh. and kind of like, not nice sometimes and I didn't yeah. like him sometimes and it's like yeah that's Beautiful. okay because we also we try to sanitize grief I think of anger 
or of all of the complexities of who that person is. And what I really loved in your telling of your journey was even that moment where you didn't shy away from saying, you know, Blaze is watching this cartoon and she keeps calling out to me and I have to do work. Yeah. Like you didn't sanitize that. You didn't say she was this angel. She never bothered me. <laughs> I was perfect as a father, right? You could say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, I'm just so curious. It's the question I think at the heart of this is, what was the journey like of finding the messiness, articulating that and giving yourself permission to hold all of those emotions yeah yeah great question um i think for whatever reason it's always been a really strong value of mine that you know giving 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 expression to all the voices i think you know partly it was reading um irvin yalom's book love's executioner i remember reading that when i was just just 18 and in fact that was the book that made me realize oh this is the work i want to do this this is accounts of real psychotherapy sessions from a from a beautiful psychotherapist and the thing that blew my socks off was uh his this scene behind the curtain and hearing you hear the things he says to his clients and you hear the things they say to him but then you hear what's going on in his voice and in in his inside of his head these inner voices and he's being Mm. triggered he's feeling neurotic he's feeling anxious he's got feelings of grandiosity and sometimes even almost narcissism (laughs) uh and and seeing how, because he's bringing all of them into comp- all of those voices into compassionate awareness, they're not intruding in the session. He's protecting his client from them in that way, and there's a healing that's going on inside of him. And I realize, my God, there's this there's this real grace and redemption in in this radical this kind of radical honesty. Um, I mm. think. And then later on, there was a I think it was Maladoma Same, one of the some is a a beautiful grief teacher. I, I, I read a quote from them saying. When you're in grief, it's okay to swear at God. God understands <laughs> <laughs> that you can you can you can say the un, the unspeakable. You can you can you can curse and you can you can take on that that wounded, toxic, vicious victim position in that in that moment because it's going to be there and it's better that it's outside than in. And and then in that moment when I'm giving expression to it, it's not so that I can more deeply ingrain that idea. It's so that I can release this and keep releasing and keep releasing. And this idea of grief as a river and that it's the it's the the judgments and the painful stories that I contract around that become the logs and the boulders in that river and, and turn it into a swamp. So what do I need to do to, to keep this river flowing? Hmm. Yeah, that's so. You were eighteen when you were learning about that. So that was when I were, first read that book. Yeah. Yeah. So were you already practicing as a therapist when Blaze was born? I had, yeah, I had trained as a therapist, and I was mostly not. I was sort of. I had clients on the side. I was mostly doing outdoor education programs, mostly doing youth work, taking kids into the bush and teaching them survival skills and nature awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was the loss of Blaze part of your journey into doing more of that therapeutic work? Um actually it was it was it definitely catalyzed my internal journey which I think m- made me a much better therapist. Um but really it was covid that shifted the balance from from doing mostly outdoor programs 
with with always with a sort of an element of inner work that we were running mm -hmm. vision quests or we were running you know deep deep rewilding programs which would always flush up emotional things for people um so feeling like i was working my therapy skills out in the bush but then yeah post covid was when i switched to mostly mostly telehealth you know mo mostly a, a psychotherapist and then just doing my outdoor programs on the side yeah mm -hmm. yeah because you can you can hear the weaving of your outdoor work definitely in the story. You know, huh. you have so many nature-based metaphors. Um, huh. And I especially loved the, the two moments of the moth, right? The moth within the realization that Blaze is this fragile creature that needs to be released. And then the moth, kind of swarm coming into that space, which to me felt like this breaking open of your individual experience and into that kind of kinship with the world that you talk mm -hmm. about later in the story, that everyone is feeling this swirl and deals with the fragility and has different ways that they're encountering that, you know? Yeah. But did it feel like, that work that you've done that you're saying, even if it's not inner in name is inner in nature, you know, vision, whenever you take anyone out of the context of their day-to-day -day life into nature, yeah. did that inform the way that you processed your grief? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. um, maybe going back to that earlier question, how, how was I able to let the, all of the different voices through? Before I even met Gina and before Blaze was born, I spent a year living in, in the wilderness, in the States actually, in the Pine Barrens wilderness, practicing tracking and, and hunting and, and survival skills. And the thing, that, the thing that happened out there was, what I realized was the hardest thing out there is not finding shelter, water, fire, food. The hardest thing out there is being with what comes up when you're in the kind of the, the solvent of wild nature, the solvent of solitude, the solvent of presence. And the first few months were amazing. It was just, okay, wow, great. I get to play all day. And then after about three months, everything started dis to disintegrate so fast inside of me that I couldn't, uh, couldn't keep up with it anymore. I couldn't pretend I was really in control anymore. And I'd started my psychotherapy training just before this. And I was, so I was able to say, oh, this look actually looks a little bit like that psychosis stuff that they were talking about in my diploma training, where I was just assailed with huge mood swings and, and crazy voices and watching whole movies play out in front of me or memories of me doing terrible things to people or saying terrible things or uh, having terrible things done to me or all of these sort of unresolved, undigested moments of my life were suddenly now without the distractions of life, without the, the kind of the, hu the hustle and bustle of the human world that could, could keep them caged, all started to fall apart and disintegrate. And I just felt like I was hanging on by my fingernails for, for May, really probably the middle six months of that year out in the bush. <laughs> and at the time I thought, I don't know what's going on, but I don't seem to be strong enough for this, this whole being out in the bush business. When I read about it in books, it's a lot more elegant. There's a lot more um, <laughs> beautiful, <laughs> transcendent moments. And I just seem to be uh, getting, uh, I'm, I'm in the spin cycle of a, of a washing machine is what it felt like. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the final kind of about three months, that process kind of subsided. The storm clouds 
past and I, I popped into this place of just a roaring oceanic spaciousness and silence inside and these these moments of intense synchronicity and serendipity you know turning my head just as the hawk comes cresting over the hill um, realizing I needed a particular plant and being in an area of the bush I hadn't been to before and just walking in pretty much a straight line to find this plant over a hundred meters or so and then realizing how did I how did I know I, this this plant isn't anywhere else but my body sort of walked in a straight line towards this plant as I felt that need all kinds of interesting things happening and feeling like my god I think this is maybe what it's supposed to be like to be a human and and that gave a whole new context to this that storm that I'd just been through I, I started to realize that that wasn't me just being crazy or just being weak or just falling apart that was there was some kind of a detox process there there was something that needed to be moved through and 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 cleared out and there's something good on the other side and and that that remained with me as this kind of bone deep uh, knowing that I take into my therapy sessions now and I take into mm. my, my own grief work this knowing this there's there's blue skies and that fresh scent uh, is, is waiting on the other side of these storm clouds and sometimes sometimes all we can I, all I can do is sort of just just cling cling to that faith it's it can feel far off at times but um, I experienced it at a deep enough level that it stuck with me mm. yeah yeah that far off feeling of it yet having the undercurrent really makes me think about this question that's been ping-ponging I think in my mind ever since I first heard your story which is so you talk about there's these beautiful moments in the story about you know holding Blaze in the shower or just the moments of connection. I love this image of her just growing up in the bush, you know, playing in the dirt, all of this, right? And then the real world's not, I hate that term, not real world. A different type of world starts to creep in, right? You have to hand her over to the doctors. There's tubes, there's tests, which to me is almost a metaphor for adulting, life, right? <laughs> Taxes, getting your car <laughs> smog, that's an American thing, you know, all the things, right? Yeah. How do you hold both of those things, right? Because it's so hard, especially as a parent. So now you have two beautiful other daughters, right? Yeah. Coco and Tiger. Yeah. How do you not just, I don't know, hold them in like, a beam of light and like sing with them 24 <laughs> seven, you know, how do you make space for the complexity of life, especially knowing that it is so, it's just so brief. Yeah. Right. So yeah. how do you do that? I think that's the, that's the question. Hey, um, yeah. There's a, a teacher of mine, Tom Brown, he calls it the razor's edge. Like, how do we walk that line? It's like anyone can be enlightened in the, in the bush. And Ram, Ram Das <laughs> said, you think you're so enlightened, go spend a weekend with your parents. It's like, <laughs> we, can, we can touch those moments of grace. And then mm -hmm. exactly like you say, we've got to go do the, the other stuff as well. And, and it's like the, the, the beingness plus the humanness along the other side. Or Jack Cornfield's book, it says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, one of the things that I'm just always blown away by and humbled by is the ability of the human mind to get bored by miracles <laughs> or even to mm. resent miracles. 
I mean, mm. I, I prayed, I prayed so hard to be a dad again. You know, it, 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 it makes me feel emotional even just thinking about the, the degree of yearning I had to be a dad again and the, the mm -hmm. degree of desperation I had around that. And then when Tiger came, I don't even know how long it was. It wasn't very long before I was like, oh my God, this, this is hard. Now I remember the suck. <laughs> this is hard work. That's right. Uh, it's, it's really terrible at times. Um, mm -hmm. It's like it's, it's the best thing and it's the worst thing. Hopefully, if we have a lifestyle that works, mostly it's the best thing. But still, there's going to be times when it's the worst thing too. I, I think, I, I, yeah, I don't know how I, how I deal with that. That's, that's a work in progress, I think. But it's very <laughs> humbling. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it, it also makes me think about the moments you talk about when you were afraid that there'd been some terrible mistake, right? This little redheaded girl was running down the street. And that was yeah. actually Blaze. Or there's another world that you lost her in, that you just had to find her. Yeah. And to me, that's so indicative of the ways that grief can try to wrap us in and pull us. And mm. the strength it took you to not just sit in that constantly, but have hope for another life that also would hold Blaze and her memory and Tiger and Coco and Hannah mm. And all of that unfolding. And it's so complex. And I think you yeah. described that so beautifully. Because there is that razor's edge. And there's the lull of just falling so deeply into it. Because maybe a remnant of the person that you lost is there. Right? Yeah. So how, how do you share that? How do you teach the lessons you learned from grief to Tiger and Coco? Mm. I mean, I think with the ages that they're at now, five and two, I think I just, I just mostly try to show up with as much gratitude and compassion as, as I can bring. And then that, that goes for myself too, which is also a massive cutting edge of mine and, and a, a learning journey and noticing those ways in which uh, when things get tough, when it gets crunchy and the pressure's on and I've got to do that thing I don't want to do, I've got to face these non-optimal situations, I've got to experience these losses, can we, can we maintain some of the humanity and the heart even in the face of that? For me, that's the challenge. And I'm not always able to do that. But to me, it's, it's uh, an attractive and beautiful enough challenge that I, I'm willing to keep picking myself up and dusting off and, and going back for that again. Cause I've, I've tasted that. There have been moments when I've been able to sort of really be with myself in the compassion, uh, even when it, it, amongst the, the heat of suffering and, and judgment and shame or whatever, a heartbreak. And I, there's a transcendence and a grace I know that's, that's available even in the heart of the storm. So I can't always find it, but I, I again, it's like I, I've, had an, I've tasted it enough times that I know it's there. I'm confident that it's there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's my edgy statement. Yeah, <laughs> bring it worth is, <laughs> And it's going to sound really weird, but I think you'll understand. But I love it already. In this very weird way, you were primed, not primed. You were in a place to accept deep loss. Some would say 
more than other people are ready or able or willing to grapple with it or and I know that obviously that's so complicated because like you said there's the constant flow and ups and downs but you've done a lot of inner exploration and work holding people in exploration you continue to do that Hmm. and I'm just curious how it is to support people that haven't dove into that discomfort that work haven't tested themselves haven't been out I mean you know it's pretty extreme to be out in the bush for months and months and months right yeah haven't pushed themselves in that way grappled with that And I guess part of that question is, how do you handle it when someone comes in and expresses deep grief because their favorite TV show ended or (laughs) their their favorite brand of, you know, potato chip is going out of business or whatever, you know, things that, how do you hold the compassion for all the ways that people might call grief? And dive into that mm. with them, specifically because you're someone that holds space for others and all the nuance of what they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I the way I think about it is, I think our relationship with grief is really our relationship with with life. You know, we're we're these fragile, uh, mortal, vulnerable little monkey people with without sharp teeth or claws or scales to protect us and we need so much in order to carry on staying alive and everything that we love and cherish we're going to lose everything that we love and cherish is going to break our heart one day either because it's going to leave our life or we're going to leave our life and have to leave it behind so really no one needs an excuse to feel grief and sometimes the things that we choose to hang our grief on my my snack food or my, my, my tv show uh, they, they seem trivial from the outside, but if that's my world, then that's how this, this river, this current of loss is showing up for me right now. And it's an existential issue. It's a part of, of being alive and being a human. And so um, my job is to, is to find the heart of that. It's like, can I join you in the heart of that? And the heart of that really is we're both alive. We're both on this incredible roller coaster. We know it's not going to last forever. And we know everything that we love is going to break our hearts. And so I can get behind whatever whatever grief or, or, or upset you're experiencing right now. Um, I can get behind it on that level. I think the loss of Blaze and the, the experiences that I've had, vision questing or being in the bush and experiencing that disintegration, they all really just gave me permission to feel the kind of grief that actually we're all, we're all having to feel an encounter sooner or later to varying degrees. It's just part of our journey. It's one of the huge gifts, the things I feel so grateful for about these experiences is that I, I, I allow myself to feel the, the depth of that. And so part of my job is, I think, helping other people to give themselves permission to feel the depth of that in a compassionate and hopeful way as well. That, that actually this is the shadow side of love. And mm. if we try to shy away from the shadow side of love, we also end up shying away from love and joy and purpose and peace and connectedness and the profound miracle and safety of being alive right in this now moment. And so, we, we, yeah, we, we want to swallow the bitter pill so that we can taste the sweetness that, uh, that, that, that comes with it too. Mm. The duality. And one, yeah. one is so necessary for the other. 
Yeah, they're the same. It's really it's this, it's this, it's that that bittersweet flavor. That's the flavor of life. It's the one the one flavor. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it reminds me of what you were saying earlier that it's so easy to forget the miracles, but you need both of those things. You need the the interplay between the loss, the grief, the joy, the profound yeah. growth. Yeah. 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 I think one of the gifts of grief is that it wakes us up to the miracles where we lose mm-hmm. something and we, we realize, oh my God, I was taking that for granted. What else am mm. I taking for granted right now? How about this nice mm-hmm. oxygen? How about this, this beating <laughs> heart? How about these other, mm-hmm. other lovely mammals on this, on this floating starship in the abyss? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's, it's so incredible to think about. What are the other ways that people can break their hearts open you think um personally i think life is always working to break our hearts open so uh, the harder thing is is trying to prevent them being broken open but we do a pretty good job of that we spend a lot of energy and <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible to hold on for longer than you'd think but i think you know connection is is a solvent connection breaks our hearts open being in relationship mm. being a parent um Caring about something, having a purpose in life can break our hearts open. It's like the once we get invested and we have skin in the game, then now we're vulnerable. Now we're, we're committed to something and we're on this, this wonderful and terrible ride <laughs> mm. <laughs> where I have to accept I, that I can't control all of the aspects of this. There's, there's an element of surrender and that, I think that surrender itself starts to break our hearts open a little bit. Yeah. Mm. Do you share your personal story with your clients? I'm especially thinking of ones that are just putting up so many walls to connect, to feel anything because of the terror of, of loss or grief. Um, I'll, I'll share it if I feel like it's relevant. If someone else has lost a family member or something, just sort of mm-hmm. to let them know, hey, I don't know what you're experiencing, but I, m- maybe we have some, some kind of kinship through this, through this experience that I've had as well. But mm-hmm. on the whole, I try to just sort of connect with people through the, the qualities that it's opened up in me rather than necessarily like the exact events that I've experienced or something mm-hmm. like that. I think that, that's how it shows up in my work is mm-hmm. there's an appreciation or there's a, a kind of a fearlessness around suffering that, that, that I can bring. Yeah. yeah. I'm really thinking about the moment in your story too when you say that the moment you first held Blaze when she was born and you realized that you had this purpose to make the world a better place because of her being in it. Yeah. Did that get shaken when you lost her? Yeah, for sure at times. At, for mm-hmm. sure at times there was this feeling of, what is this, this fucking world? You know what the what the fuck is going on? How can I get behind this? How can I tolerate this? This mm-hmm. is this is unspeakable. And then I think in those moments, I just had this sort of survival instinct of, hey, you have to start expressing this. You have to move this through. If this if this lodges in the belly, it's gonna it's gonna sprout some some pretty problematic roots. And so those were the moments when I would 
go for a drive and 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 swear swear at God, you know, shout shout at the universe, vo- voice these, <laughs> write write a very stern letter to the management. You know, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Please tell me, like, what what's going on here? Actually, help me to understand how I can start to lean into this journey again. Because at the moment, I've I've had a gutful. Um, mm. And then, yeah, what would happen is if I, as long as I gave my permission to ex- myself permission to express that, there's enough compassion that I didn't go into self-abandonment. And sometimes I would for periods of time. But when I came back again, if I could, if I could get that moving, th- then the river of grief would start to flow again. And I'd start to feel like there was some larger picture, some larger context in which I could start to try and make sense of this. And that there might even be a day when I start to feel like, life is working with me and for me again whether i know Mm. it or not Mm -hmm. which is that's which is my perspective now yeah i mean it's incredible the balancing act that you it sounds like you do between holding all of what you learned from the loss but also giving yourself the grace to you know be frustrated when your kids just you know <laughs> spilled their tea all their drink all over you yeah, and yeah, you're late yeah. for work or whatever you know or they yeah. smash your computer by accident or all of that <laughs> and I would imagine it was a journey a struggle to not kind of try to almost I'm picturing like someone running through and trying to put out tiny like you know your friend says oh my my little kid is or my teen I don't know my teenager is so obnoxious right now and you're like but you have a teenager right mm. you get to have this you know did it feel like this, there was this immediacy to like hand out this awakening to people I think I think I'm not sure I feel awakened enough of the time to to feel like I got a, a surplus <laughs> to hand out <laughs> um yeah, I I think it's just we just have to be real, hey. If we if we're not real, then we're not really doing much. And so, yeah, I, my commitment is just is just to being real. And then, yeah, I, I, like I say, I think in the the people that I work with, I can always find that same kindred cutting edge of suffering. You know, it's like no matter how much pain I feel like I've been through, show me despair, uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll show you mine. Um, mm-hmm. We we all we all have that to, to different layers, I think, and and actually it might be that someone who on the surface you could look at them and say, well, this person's got everything they need; they've got nothing to complain about. But maybe they don't have the inner wealth and the inner r- sort of robustness or generosity to be able to meet those these these road bumps along the way with the kind of spaciousness that that, that someone else might be able to as well. And so in that case. You know, if, if if they're driving a car with no suspension, even the tiniest bumps are going to feel really jarring. Um, mm. So there, there's there's always, I think, room for compassion. It's like we're all trying to do our best. We're all we all have our own journeys of of loss. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone that comes into relationship has their own past, and I would imagine. Well, I don't know what Hannah felt coming in to relationship with you. But I'm curious what you did to open the door into the room that was Blaze's memory for her to step into. And if that, if you ever wanted to not let her in. Ah, 
No, I think like my my nature is I'm all about like hey let's <laughs> let, let, let's let's see if we can open the doors. Um, she was she's always been amazing. I think one of the things that's been tough for her and for me is um, one of the, the ways that the grief has lingered for me is this, there's a there's a part of my body that's a little bit worried that it, that catastrophe might happen again. Catastrophe might be around the corner. It's like there's a hey. I remember this feeling of being really close to a little person and then it didn't didn't go so good. So maybe we really need to make sure no one's going to fall off that trampoline or maybe it's really imperative we give them all of the best and most nutritious food possible. <laughs> maybe we really <laughs> need to do all of the things right. You know, sometimes when I get stressed or I'm feeling there's a kind of a rigidity and a bit of a, con a desire to control that comes in, which she struggles with and I struggle with. And uh, yeah, that, that's the sort of part of, of the legacy, I think, for me as well as the you know appreciation and and gratitude mm -hmm. what does she do that that helps with that that helps you not to feel so trapped in that i think she just calls me on it mostly <laughs> she says hey actually i think it's going to be fine <laughs> which at the time is often maddening and then then but it also it's nice she's not being complicit in that story she's not trying to placate that she's not trying to say yes let's try and control all the things she's saying actually hey dude i think that's just yours right now and so mm. then I, there's nowhere for me to go other than to kind of try and take ownership of that. In a way, she's that embodiment of that tattoo that you thought about getting is this grief. <laughs> That's right. Like, is this reaction in the context of what's actually happening right now? Or is this, you know, the ripple effect of the That's past? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's good at that. She's good at seeing, okay, this is, this is what this guy's carrying. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I mm. would imagine that was complicated though, to first, well, you talk about that. <laughs> I love that moment yeah. in your postscript where, you know, you call her and you go, you give her the like <laughs> TED talk, right? You know, this is who I am. This is what I want. You should know all these things about me. And I also really want you. And then you, you had the insight to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe we should, you know, go for one day. <laughs> <laughs> see what happens <laughs> and I really appreciate that you had the ability to step back and I, I don't know like did you do any casual dating before like what was did you try that yeah 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 we did oh so I should say for that phone call yeah I was the one that called back but after she said I wasn't worried. I knew you were going to call back. <laughs> I knew you were just crazy, but I, I, I could feel you were on, you, you were on the line. I, I, I'd already hooked you. I was, I was pretty confident that that wasn't the end of the story. But before you met her, did you, I'm just wondering, like, let's say you on a first date, like, when do you bring up, when do you share before you met Hannah? Did you do a lot of like dating people? Uh, not a huge amount, actually. I, I'm not sure I ever had to bring it up to someone who didn't know me. And I hmm. think I'm pretty sure that Hannah might have known already just through sort of our networks or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. An interesting question. I, I, I don't know how I would have played that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a big part of who you are and it's like yeah. not necessarily a casual conversation. No, not so much. Yeah. 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 That's the benefit, I guess, of having being in circles where people are used to holding the full spectrum of who people are and, you know, showing up and I compassion. Think so. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Mm. 
So I'm curious, you said that looking through the photo album, this 10 year anniversary and what else has come up or risen either through this conversation or re-listening to the story? It's a good question. I, I just, just recently, um, got these tattoos i i it wasn't it wasn't uh, is this grief but i got a whole bunch of just big flowers <laughs> it's mm. just flowers on my back flowers on my shoulders and they're chrysanthemum flowers that in in asian culture they're often linked to grief but also to celebration this feeling of coming up on the 10-year anniversary has sort of felt like coming to the finish line of some long journey some long chapter and now what i'm emerging with and moving on with is this feeling of celebration this feeling of kind of the, the, the blessings and the beauty, the, the fragrance of, of, of life. And yeah, to me, that just feels like a gift of, of Blaze. And you know, I, everywhere I look, I'm looking and I'm seeing these are gifts of Blaze. Actually, Hannah is a gift from, from Blaze. These two mm -hmm. amazing daughters of mine are gifts from Blaze. This life that I'm living now, it's a whole new chapter that was opened up from, from the loss of Blaze. I think that's the enduring um, flavor scent <laughs> mm. yeah mm. fragrance that's beautiful yeah wow all these things that she brought to you yeah yeah and and not only that but the, the sort of the flowers that opened up inside of me as a result these new compassion new gratitude these pathways of grief that got really cleaned out you know my, i think before blaze my rivers were a little bit more like streams and then when something big like that comes through it, it clears out all of the the dead wood and the, the built up sediment. And I think now those pathways are more like, like fully fledged rivers inside of me, pathways of, of love, of feeling, of self-compassion, of tolerance and flexibility. And Blaze would have been 13. So in some ways stepping <laughs> out of childhood into yeah. more of like teenage, you know, all of that. Yeah. So you would have been transitioning to yeah, in a big yeah. way. I was just yeah. laughing, thinking, yeah, I would, I'd need everything I had to, 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 to start parenting a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very true. You know, one thing that I really always like to ask, because I don't think we think about it very much, but is there anything that you'll miss about the anger that you felt for these 10 years? No, not really. It was a bitter anger. And it was an anger not just at Blaze, but an anger at life itself. Kind of like the flow mm. of life and the fact of being a mortal being, surrounded by other mortal beings, trying to cherish things and having them, them leave. And yeah, it was just relief when I realized it wasn't there anymore. It's, just the, the, it's the anger that says, I, I want to hold this shape and I want to say no to the flow of life. And it's it's exhausting position to be. I hadn't even realized how exhausting it was until I realized it wasn't there. And I thought, my God, this is so much better now. And I'd been kind of aware of it to varying degrees, dimly, and but hadn't been able to let it go until some point uh, uh, along the way. Um, mm -hmm. No, it wasn't. It wasn't sort of the empowering anger. It was a. It was a pretty bitter and and constricted anger. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I always like to ask that question yeah. with the emotions that feel like we're told we shouldn't have them, but then yeah. we have them. 
because sometimes, you know, people will say like, oh, but actually it allowed me to say like, if I failed at that thing, it was probably because I was angry and now Uh. letting go of it, it's going to be so much scarier and more vulnerable to just say, no, that didn't work out because of me. It's not anything outside of me. It's not something that was like dragging me down. Yeah. And that's so much scarier, but then also obviously allows you to just show up fully and then say, well, it's okay. It was my, I tried my fullest and it didn't work out, but it's not this anger, this, this weight that was holding me back. But that can be scary because it's that safety Right. It's that thing we can say like, oh, no, it was that anger. It was my inflexibility that ruined that relationship or it was the loss that I'm still holding on to that made me not show up in that full way. Yeah. 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 Yeah, A bit of protection. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about what we'll miss about those things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I love the idea of permission for those feelings, Mm -hmm. especially anger. I work with lots of clients who find that hard to give themselves permission to feel that anger. Yeah. Yeah. And anger is so fascinating because it's like those poison-tipped arrows that we think we're shooting out at everyone around us, but really are coming so deeply back into us. Mm. And we hold it. Yeah. It's one of those. It's also, you know, like we, we work with, I work with the anger iceberg, right? So it's just the tip of the iceberg and there's so much underneath it. Yes. And so it makes me curious now now that you're letting go of that emotion that's so much easier maybe to realize that you have, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's going to arise for you? Yeah. What's under, what's been buried underneath that anger Yeah. for all these years? Although yeah. of course it sounds like you've, you've really dove down many times to look underneath that iceberg and all the intricacies of it. I feel like I've met most of the usual suspects. Yeah. The- <laughs> Pettiness and resentfulness, <laughs> <laughs> terror and <laughs> neurosis. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested to see too. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I'm so appreciative of you returning to this, right? So first of all, to tell the story to begin with, right? Send seven years out, you told this story. What a beautiful thing that I'm wondering were you afraid of pulling back maybe some of what you felt like the scabs were that you you'd worked hard to build when you told the story when i originally told it yeah i don't think so i think because of the way i was approaching it there wasn't really a feeling that there was something fragile i had to maintain mm. there was more a feeling of there's some work of that I got to do, which is about excavation and release and feeling. And, and that was a big kind of motivation for me wanting to tell the story. I realized, okay, it's been all this time now since it happened. There are actually details that are starting to feel a bit foggy. I kind of want to tell this story in a way and have it be recorded so that, so I can remember what that, that me that went through that. And yeah, my wife, Hannah, she's a really big fan of risk. And she said, Hey, you should, you should tell the Blaze story for this podcast. And I said, oh, I don't know if I could do that. But it sort of stuck around in the back of my mind. And I was thinking, how would I do that? I don't know. And I'd almost given up thinking, I don't think I can do it justice. I don't know how to do that. And then I woke up one morning. I woke up sort of at, at sunrise. And 
it was really at the surface. That whole experience was really there, really present for me. And I sat down and I had my eyes closed for pretty much the whole thing. I just started talking into, into my phone and it just all fell out in one piece. And after I finished the recording, I couldn't quite remember exactly what I'd said. <laughs> I was like, I, wow. I, don't, I wonder if that even made sense. I hope that's going to be okay. And it was a big relief when Kevin said, yeah, that was actually good. We'll, we'll, we'll take that one. Um, wow. That makes and, me think yeah. that Blaze had something to do with that too. It definitely felt like... It definitely felt like it wasn't something that was that was was just me. Yeah, it felt like it sort of came through me and fell out of me. Yeah, yeah. Did you have any hopes when you sent the story winging out into the world? I think my only hope was really just to sort of just maybe if it gave one person a bit more permission to be where they were at in the grief journey or or if one person was able to find some resonance and feel some some connection in that way then I thought that was going to be enough um it felt it felt vulnerable but I also you know I was just like okay whatever people people can judge me mostly I was doing that because I wanted to record that story and and if it's useful for the people who it's useful for then okay great whatever We'll let that well, one go. I'm that one person that I deeply Yay. impacted, and I would imagine there's many, many more. Good, thank you. So, mission really accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's really good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have any last things you'd like to share as we wrap up? No, no. It's just been a really lovely conversation. I really appreciate your questions. Thank you for helping me to kind of unpack some of it. I feel like I'm. It's helping me to sort of land in this in this kind of anniversary place in a in a in a really full way. So yeah, thanks. Yeah. Mm. Well thank you for sharing all this with me and the risk community. And I do think that the story is gonna touch so many lives and has. And I really appreciate you giving us a peek into the aftermath and Mm. the continued unfolding of it because Mm. I think you did that so beautifully in the story itself but then to even hear more of what has arisen for you and I, I really really appreciate the honesty because I think listening to your story an average person, first of all, would say, oh, he practiced that a thousand times, <laughs> right? It's so beautifully told. Or, yeah. you know, that was right after it happened. There were so many vivid memories. Yeah. So to me, it gives me both hope knowing that you could hold on to so much of the beauty and the multi-layered complexity of it all those years later, mm. that it can stay blooming for you in such a fragrant beautiful way for so Mm. long but also the honesty and the permission that you can have all of this what I call enlightened ways of thinking and you can Mm. hold the fist tight of anger Mm. for that long too and both of those things can be twin flames inside of you and that's okay so I just appreciate that permission yeah well said thank you thank you so much thanks Lee such a pleasure so many yeah. so many gifts from blaze you know i think i think about the story going out into the world as it's like blaze's legacy really she was here for three years but she actually had she had this huge legacy was was, was bigger than her lifetime so 
Yeah, thanks for helping me harvest some of that. It's been such an honor. Thank you. Well, that is all for this episode, folks. You can learn more about Lee True's work at connectionculture.life. And you can learn more about Laurel Mark's work at teamwonder.org. And you can hear the addendum story that Lee told back in 2022 about what happened where he left off with this story at patreon.com slash risk. That story is called Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Folks, you can't hear programming like this anywhere else. And we need your support to keep Risk running. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. We are so, so grateful to all of our listeners for their support. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>